You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, I'm Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed. And today we're going to be with uh, Stanley Fish, who is a professor of law at Florida International University, also visiting professor at Cardozo School of Law, also the author of many books, the most recent of which is The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. This is probably the moment in history where I think, Stanley, you have a lot to say. We can talk about a lot of things. Maybe we can start with the subject matter of this book. Free speech is in the news now, perhaps more than ever, with everybody accusing everybody else of infringing on on free speech. Certainly in the academy, everybody's talking about how people are being canceled, events are being canceled, discussion in the classroom is being canceled. So what do you think? Is there any merit to these uh, accusations? Has anything changed or is it really, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same? We have to begin by distinguishing between two basic ways of thinking about free speech issues. One is legal and constitutional, and the other is the more general resonance, the phrase free speech has in our society. The legal and constitutional definition or characterization of free speech is rather limited. In effect, it says that your government, yours and mine, cannot prevent us from saying something or penalizing us if we do, nor can your government and mine compel us to say things that we do not wish to say. Now, those are fairly limited circumstances, and those circumstances don't speak at all to the realm of private life. That is when we're engaged in the everyday activities of commerce, domestic life, etc., and in the course of those activities, we produce and listen to and consume speech. But the First Amendment in general has nothing whatsoever to say about that large swath of human life in which speech is being produced. And many people believe that the legal constitutional prohibitions against abridging free speech carry over into the sphere of private life, but they do not. So, for example, in many, not all, but in many cases, your employer can fire you if he or she does not like the kinds of things that you say and doesn't want his or her business to be associated with persons who say those kinds of things. A lot of people misunderstand this. A lot of people believe that they have something called free speech rights, which travel from specifically legal situations to the everyday context of our lives, but that's not so. Well, doesn't the boundary between public and private begin to dissolve at some point when market power becomes sufficiently strong? So in antitrust law, if if something, some private entity becomes more or less a monopoly, then they have to start paying respect to due process. Or if a private location becomes a, a, a gathering place for the public, then it starts to acquire some characteristics of a public venue. You're quite correct. And right now, of course, we see questions like the ones that you've just raised playing out in the debates about Facebook and Twitter and other large private vendors and platforms, which nevertheless have such a large role in everyone's life and in public life that regulation of them is being seriously considered and in some cases performed. In the other direction, You may recall that some years ago, the free speech rights of private organizations like the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Boston or the Boy Scouts of America became a topic of discussion. Again, because the Boy Scouts of America, although a private institution, had such a public face that many people regarded it as uh, part of the government. And in Boston, of course, the St. Patrick's Day Parade was a primary political event every year. And therefore, it would seem to many that it should be subject to either free speech scrutiny or the beneficiary of free speech tolerance. 
Now, I think you've been done a great job of breaking apart the kind of implied assumptions that people have when they talk about free speech and everybody claims to be in support of free speech. And so when they see speech they, they don't like or that they want to uh, prohibit, they just redefine it as action rather than speech. How does that distinction work in practice between talking about speech and talking about action? The distinction between speech and action is crucial to any especially legal formulation of free speech doctrine. And you can see that immediately. If you were to rewrite the First Amendment so that it said, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of action, that would immediately be seen as ridiculous because it's the business of governments and legislatures to police action in a variety of ways. So for there to be something called the First Amendment, which singles out speech for special protection, speech must be defined in a way that distinguishes it from action. Unfortunately, at least philosophically, that cannot be done, although many attempts to do it have been made over the decades and centuries. We want to believe what we were taught when we were young, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But most of us realize also that this is a false statement, that words rather than merely entering the ear and being processed by the brain also have effects on the body, on one's way of life, both economic and cultural. And everywhere you look, it's quite obvious that words can have as many lacerating and lasting effects as forms of action. And the conclusion to that is one I think is philosophically correct, which is that speech and action are not in fact diametrically imposed but are different forms of action. And there are distinctions that could be made between them in terms of severity, the conditions under which they occur, etc. But the firm distinction between speech and action cannot be maintained. That's point one. Point two, perhaps paradoxically, is that the firm distinction between speech and action must be maintained, at least rhetorically, perhaps as a necessary legal fiction, one might say so that certain legal business can be done. This is not something that's unique to free speech doctrine. It's often the case in law that concepts which would not hold up under philosophical interrogation are nevertheless important to put in place because without them, certain jobs and tasks that you want to perform cannot be done. For example, if you want to be able to be in a position where you protect persons from adverse reactions on the basis of their speech, especially on adverse reactions on the part of government, you must have a speech act distinction to invoke, even though you couldn't defend it down to the ground if your life depended on it. Law and economics as a movement is, is motivated, I think, primarily by a utilitarian perspective. No such distinction would be made, right? You would just look at an utterance uh, the same way you would look at an action and you would try to calculate the costs and benefits of it. But even people who I think are utilitarians, they reserve a special place for speech and think of it as, as something that's, that's deserving of this greater protection. And I think in your work, you asked the question, well, what is speech for? And you can't really determine what kind of protections it deserves if you don't think about what it's for. So what is speech for? Why do we, why do we give it this special position as a subset of actions? Well, you're quite right about the special place that uh, speech and the idea of free speech has in our culture. And the answers to the question that you pose, what is speech for? Various, but not that many, and are familiar. So the first one that you're likely to hear is that speech facilitates the search for truth. And the reasoning there is obvious. If you're trying to find out the truth of something, you don't begin by either elevating one description of it to an unimpeachable position or discarding before they are given a hearing other descriptions. So in order for the inquiry that leads to the establishment of truth to continue, you have to have freedom of speech. Another popular answer to the question, what is speech for? Speech enables the fashioning of democratic citizenship that can then make informed decisions. The idea there is that if you live in a society like ours, where government proceeds from the ground up, from the people to the people's representatives, then you must have a clear and a firm basis for the making of decisions 
for example, the decision of voting some people into office and voting some others out of office. And in order for you to have a good basis for your decision, you have to have as much information as possible. A third, again, a very popular answer to the question, what is speech for? I say that speech protects minorities against the power of the majority establishment, which might, for political reasons, wish to stifle or marginalize the speech of its opponents. And the First Amendment uh, doesn't allow you to do that. This, in fact, was the argument that Robert Bork gave in a 1971 University of Indiana Law Review article, which later got him into trouble when he appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So all of these reasonings, search for truth, informed citizenry, the encouragement uh, of dissent, etc., are good arguments. But what I say in this new book, and actually what I said many years ago, is that those are also arguments for censorship. It's a paradox, but once it's unpacked, I don't think it is so paradoxical. It's a paradox, apparently, but only apparently. For example, if you believe that free freedom of speech facilitates the search for truth, you have to acknowledge that some forms of speech, rather than facilitating truth, stand in its way, obstacles to it prevent it from coming to light. And in order, therefore, to realize this great value of the First Amendment, it helps us in the search for truth. You must censor those forms of speech that do not participate in that project. That seems analogous to the idea that why regulation is necessary for free markets. I remember I was at a seminar with Ronald Dworkin and the idea came up that there's no reason a priori to believe that the marketplace for ideas is going to lead to a good result. And I think that's true for any kind of marketplace, an unregulated marketplace. There's no reason to believe that you're going to get to an optimal outcome. Right. There isn't. Bernard Williams was the one that was saying this. Oh, yeah. Yes. The marketplace of ideas is an image, actually, that is put forward in free speech polemics that actually, to use a pragmatist phrase, has very little cash value, in part for the reason that you've been given. An unregulated marketplace will act, as some quickly saw, as a suicide pact. So that if the first principle of liberal democracy is that all voices should be heard and be given a chance to persuade, what do you do with those voices which, if they are heard, will attempt to shut down the marketplace or to allow only its views to be presented in the marketplace? And there are two answers to that question. One was given by Justice Holmes in one of his early dissents when he said, well, if a form of speech has uh, as its effects the bringing about of some kind of dictatorship, then the First Amendment tells us that we must let it have its way. That's a paraphrase, not a direct quote. And then you have, as opposed to that, the more optimistic view represented by Justice Brandeis at about the same time, maybe 10 years later, when Brandeis said two things. One, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And two, the remedy for bad speech is more speech, not enforced silence. And there he was saying, in effect, that if you let bad speech or dangerous speech or pernicious speech out into the air, the public will see it for what it is and reject it. It will wither and die. So that's the optimistic view, that the markets will, in effect, regulate themselves. And in a kind of reverse Gresham's law, the good will drive out the bad. And as I say in my book, the only really good counter argument to Brandeis's optimism is all of recorded history, because it's never happened that way. Not inevitably, but often. It's the case that if you let an idea into the air and allow it to be broadcast with whatever megaphone its proponents may be able to afford, the result will be that people who have never heard of it before will suddenly hear of it and think to themselves, ah, that's the truth that I now believe in. What happens is what, in fact, is happening in general in the world of the Internet that lies, distortions, massive campaigns of deception, rather than being curtailed 
by an internet which lets everybody know what's going on, in fact, have grown and proliferated by virtue of the internet. And that gets me quickly, perhaps too quickly, to a major argument in several of the chapters in the new book, which is that the mantra, the free speech mantra, the more speech, the better, is false. And that therefore the inclination of some in our society to assume that the proliferation of speech will often bring about, more often bring about good results, is false. And this ties back to the original question you posed. Is an unregulated market always going to produce good effects? And at least in the context of the speech market, the answer is absolutely not. I think here in Silicon Valley, there's this kind of techno-utopian vision that that you refer to in the book, which is that the good arguments will drive the bad arguments out as some kind of natural law. I, I don't think that there's any empirical support for that, but that seems to be an article of faith among quite a few people. But it's an article of faith which is based on an idea of language. The idea is that, and you can see this presented in the popular version in the famous essay by George Orwell, Politics and the English Language, which to my mind is the single worst essay ever written by a major figure on anything. And what Orwell says in this essay is that the problems in our political world today, problems of communication, that is that we have, our language has degenerated. It's no longer faithfully reflecting the nitty gritty facts of every life, of everyday life and techniques of distortion and deception have taken over. Orwell goes on to say that if we can refine our language so that every word that we speak refers to an empirically identifiable entity, and if we simply do not allow ourselves to use the kind of political vocabulary that feeds on distortion, hyperbole, and exaggeration, then our political lives, the lives of our culture, will improve. Fix the language, fix the culture, fix the world, fix the human condition. Now, if you think about that for a while, it is bizarre. There's no reason at all for that to be the case. And as Thomas Kuhn said in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, there is no such thing as a natural independent language that belongs to nature, which if we could tie into it, would edit out all of our human imperfections. And that's what stands behind the techno-utopian thinking and writing of the early prophets of the internet. The idea that we can fashion a language such that if we attach ourselves to it, all the difficulties in the world from domestic arguments to war will in fact be settled. You may remember the movie Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman. And there's a famous scene after Paul Newman has been beaten by a prison guard played by Struther Martin and thrown into a pit. Struther Martin is standing above him and says to him, what we have here is a failure of communication. And that's the lesson of the techno-utopians. A, what we have here is a failure of communication. And B, we can fix it with the internet and with our platforms. But could an alternative be to convert the political space into uh, sort of a, a bounded argument space and try to craft rules that kind of channeled the conversation and channeled the arguments into a direction that might be more productive? What happens in that case is that the rules themselves become the object of contestation. The rules that were supposed to filter out prejudiced or merely partisan views then become the object of prejudice and partisan debate. Now, I'll say any effort to eliminate what Philip Roth called the human stain from human communication will fail. Although it will always be my saying that, my ability to demonstrate it historically and conceptually will not, I think, dissuade people who read me or who read others who are making the same point as I am. Because this faith that if only we could repair the ruins of Eden, if only we could go back to the moment before the Tower of Babel, 
when we all spoke the same language, and that language was like the language Adam and Eve spoke in Eden, where words named single things, and there were no metaphors, no equivocations, no distortions. There's always an effort to get back to that supposed origin. It will always fail, and it will always have an appeal. Maybe we don't need to go back to the Garden of Eden. Maybe we can go back to the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I think in in your book, you talk about how spin is unavoidable and all political argumentation is some form of spin. But you do point out that the nature of that spin has changed and at least the attention span of the people participating in the political discussions has shrunk. What accounts for this? Is it purely a technology driven or is there a cultural element to this? And is this, in your view, something which is beyond repair or even in need of repair? Well, it certainly is in need of repair. And Lincoln Douglas debates were remarkable for the length and duration of the back and forth between Douglas and Lincoln over extended period of time. So that someone who is paying attention was paying attention to a sequence of arguments and to the responses to those arguments and to the responses to those responses. Immediately saying that, you realize that nothing like that is occurring in our political life today, where instead you have the statement and response made within 20 to 30 seconds of one another, and on both sides you have not arguments but talking points, pieces of currency that you hand around and that do their work immediately and do not encourage reflection at all on their content. And of course, it was reflection that was being encouraged in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Could we get that back? Of course, there are always have been both media efforts and political efforts to do that. Media efforts, there used to be more TV programs than there are now. In fact, I'm not even sure if there are any now. Programs like William Buckley's Firing Line, on which I appeared, I once appeared on Buckley's firing line for a two-hour discussion of the questions that still bedevil us about political correctness and et cetera, et cetera. It was an extraordinary event, I thought, in that these issues were fully argued out by people who were knowledgeable and committed to their positions. In the current Senate and Congress, there are groups like the Promise Keepers Group and others, people who uh, meet together regularly in a bipartisan fashion, not in public in order to try to figure out, as it is said in politics, the way forward. So there are some people doing that. But the large amount of interaction between ideas in the public takes place in the instant, this is the moment, we win the moment, milieu that we've known for quite a while, and in which the point is simply to make your point as vigorously as possible, and then get out of the way and go on to the next point. The very opposite of inviting considered reflection and deliberation. I heard someone argue that once that this technological change is what's driving it and that this is going to usher in a, a long period of a particular type of discourse. The argument goes that the um, Reformation was launched by the printing press, and so we had about 200 years of disruption following that invention. And then Hitler and Stalin were enabled by radio and radio really ushered in a generation of turmoil. And social media is really what's uh, motivating this change in the rhetorical landscape. It apparently goes along with something that you uh, mentioned in your question, and that is the limitation on attention span. People, for example, I don't myself teach literature any longer for a number of years, but I understand that Reading novels, for example, is not something that you can count on students to do. And of course, the proliferation in the film industry of Marvel Comics blockbusters and the relegation of thoughtful movies to the independent market or to the market that goes immediately to cable or TV has been long, has been long observed. And I think that, in fact, is happening. You can't get financing these days for certain kinds of films that won the Academy Award 30 or 40 years ago. They would be considered too slow, not enough action. 
And I guess this isn't something generally that is culturally happening to us or that we have produced and therefore now reaping the whirlwind. But I have no wisdom, no media wisdom or meta-media wisdom to dispense uh, as to how this can be uh, reversed. I'm sorry, I wish I did. You've made the move from literature to law, and I think maybe someone on the outside might find this a, a peculiar evolution, but your work has always been about interpretation and persuasion. And I was wondering if you could comment on some of the similarities and what lawyers can learn from literature and vice versa. In particular, you've mentioned that you are, in terms of your style of interpretation, you sit between the folks who view the text as speaking for itself and the meaning residing entirely in the individual reader. And that this thinking about where to situate yourself between these perspectives is something that, that is important both for literary criticism and for interpretation of statutes and contracts. What drew me to the law was the topic of interpretation, which is shared in legal studies and in literary studies. And the position that I have taken in both areas is what is called an intentionalist position. That is, for me, whether you're thinking about what a poet or novelist meant or what the framers of constitution meant, you're always asking a question about intention. What is it that this person or that this group of persons had in mind when they produced this verbal artifact? So I would say, and of course I'm not the only one by far who says this, that you can't really get to meaning by just scrutinizing the formal features of a verbal artifact, whether it's a clause in the Constitution or a poem by John Dunn. Instead, in order for the words to come alive and even be words, you have to somehow imagine or construct an intelligence that intended a particular effect and was using these words to realize it. Therefore, the task of understanding in both law and literature is to figure out what that author or authors had in mind. Not always easy to do, in fact, notoriously difficult to do, both in the legal context and the literary context. I wanted to shift a little bit to academia, and you've made the claim that interpretive communities is your big idea, and that the academy, there are certain rules that you have to follow when it comes to making an academic argument, and that academic arguments are not necessarily the same as an attempt to, ad to advance social justice or something like that. Could you talk a little bit about what it means to make an academic argument? Do you think that people in the academic community have shifted their understanding of what it means to make an academic argument? Yes, I think they have. I think that many students and more than a few faculty members have been influenced by movements like the social justice movement and want their scholarship and their teaching to have some direct relationship to the pressing problems of our culture. And I think for a variety of reasons, which I've been detailing for years, I think that's a huge mistake. The alternative, at least in terms of the academic world, is to regard the academic task as not altering the world in some way, or as I put it in the title of one book, saving the world. That's not what our job is as academics. Our job is to understand and explain things. So if you're teaching a course, there are two things that you want to do for your students. You want to put them in possession of materials that presumably they were previously unfamiliar with. And second, you want to equip them with skills, research skills, laboratory skills, archival skills that will enable them to continue research in this field when your class is over. That's it as far as I'm concerned. And that everything that is said in the classroom should in fact be harnessed to that twin mission, which means that you're never in a position when you're acting as a political agent or as a therapist or as a recruiter of some kind when you are a professor engaging in the classroom. And therefore, there are certain kinds of arguments that you don't make because academic arguments, as you said, have their own shape and protocols. So, for example, an ad hominem argument, an argument which basically goes, so-and-so is a bad person, therefore what he says is false, has no place 
in the academy, whereas an ad hominem argument has a very large place in the world of politics, where there are many efforts to impugn what your opponent says by impugning his character and saying, in effect, to the voters, would you want to listen to anything such a person had to say? And if you go through the various contexts in which arguments are given, made, and defended, you will find each of them has its own set uh, of protocols and do's and don'ts, things that aren't said when we're engaged in this activity. Although in some other activity, perfectly legitimate, these same things will not only be said, but will be considered obligatory. Do you think that the boundary lines between the academic interpretive communities and and this political argument space are starting to blur? Oh, they have blurred. They have blurred for many people. Not for all, but for a great many people. They have entirely blurred for students. Uh, And that's, that's logical because the idea that I've just been put forward is not a natural one. That is, you don't, that's not something that your creator endowed you with. It's something that has to be learned. Where is it going to be learned? It's going to be learned in the classroom. But if you as a student sit in classrooms where, frankly, political discussions are encouraged and engaged in, you're going to think that, in fact, there's no line between the academic mode of interrogation and the political or real-world mode of interrogation. What is required are instructors who simply don't allow that blurring, as you termed it, to occur. And instructors who say, well, that's a very interesting question. Perhaps we could discuss it after class over a cup of coffee or something like that. But it's not an academic question, and we're not going to consider it here. Now, the argument against what I've just said is that that makes the academy an arid, empty place where the relationship between what's going on and anything else in the world is entirely severed. I think that's too strong, but I will stipulate to a version of it by saying that the arguments against the academy being an ivory tower are wrong. The academy is and should be an ivory tower. And when it ceases to be, it loses its distinctiveness, the distinctiveness of the task that it can perform, and therefore the distinctiveness of the value or service it can provide in the society. If universities are just political agents with classrooms, let's get rid of the classrooms and go right to it. I think some people might support that idea. I think in my experience, some of the students would are not really interested in discussing it outside of the classroom. They want it to be an essential part of the classroom. They want the classroom to be a, a venue where social justice can be pursued. And it's critically important that it happen specifically in the classroom and that certain lines of inquiry are prescribed and other lines of inquiry are, are uh, encouraged. Yeah, again, I think that's just a mistake. I'm not saying that political topics should not be introduced into the classroom. That's impossible, especially in literature, and in disciplines like political science, sociology, anthropology, and a great many others. The question is, once a political topic is introduced in the classroom, how is it treated? Is it treated as an occasion for being accepted or rejected, which is being treated politically, or is the topic being treated as something that you study and analyze? What are its constituents? Who are its adherents? What is the history of this particular concern? Where did it come from? How is it distributed among classes of persons, etc.? There's no end of the way ways in which you can do what I call academicize a topic, even a topic that seems obviously political. So it's something that can easily be done. And again, if it isn't done, then it's an open question as to whether why there should be classrooms at all if they're just doing politics. If what you're doing in a classroom is just doing politics, probably less well than you might do it if you were out in the real world. Do you think that comfort with that distinctiveness requires a, an understanding of the basic rhetorical tools and an understanding of how we view distinctions like normative and positive and in fact, an inference. And I think when we were both at Duke University, there was a required class for all incoming freshmen where they were exposed to these concepts of of rhetoric. Is this something that is, you think, no longer part of the standard undergraduate education? Are these kind of concepts and, and tools and ways of thinking 
unfamiliar to people in higher education now? Certainly classes in rhetoric, along with classes in civic education, have greatly diminished. Therefore, the grasp that people might have on the distinctions between the various contexts of our public and private lives is not as firm as it has been. Now, there are always efforts to bring back civic education and to have general courses teaching people the basic constituents of clear thinking, distinctions between fact and value, between deductive reasoning and empirical reasoning, all kinds of distinctions between the normative and the positive accounts of a matter. All of these could be put into a single course, a course in rhetoric or a course in the rhetoric and logic of human inquiry. That would be a title large enough to accommodate. Or people who teach particular courses, like as you and I do, could introduce the requisite concepts as they come along. I mean, I'm struck over and over again in teaching law students. And this just happened a couple of weeks ago. If you read a case in law, or and especially if you read law articles or books about law, you're going to run into the word normative in every other paragraph. I find that the students, my students, didn't understand what the word normative meant. They just didn't understand it, which allowed me to wonder, how is it that you can be engaged in activity in which a particular word is used repeatedly, and you're not curious enough to find out what it means? This then puts a special burden on the instructor who must be on the lookout for such things and must be, therefore, able to furnish the students with the kinds of distinctions that they might have received if they took the kind of course that you were mentioning in your question. Now, you concluded your your book on winning arguments by saying to escape politics is to escape mortality. And the belief in a life without politics is an illusion. And I think you make this point not just about the political realm, but also you bring it back into even the personal realm, the familial realm, the the realm of friendship, the realm of marriage and parenthood. And I found with my students that their ability to manage disagreement, their ability to navigate disagreement, to resolve uh, disagreement is fairly weak. Do you see this as a skill that people need to learn? Where would they learn it? How would they learn it? You mentioned marital therapists and other relationship therapists as being in the service of helping to resolve disagreements. How does one learn to be a better disagreeer, a better conversationalist, a better arguer? Your two words, conversations and arguer, uh, point in the right direction because you have to regard a conversation as just that instead of as an occasion for beating your opponent or your partner over the head with whatever blunt instrument you have at hand. So what is needed is an understanding and practice in deliberative argument and uh, counter-argument back and forth so that you have an understanding of what the possible mechanics of persuasion are. Now, that is what, uh, in an earlier day, debate clubs and debating societies, our colleges and in our our high schools were all about. There still are debate societies and, and debate club, but it's, I think, regarded by uh, most students as a peripheral rather than as a central activity. At least that would be my guess. What's necessary is for someone to hear an argument and then to think about the argument in a way that is not immediately visceral and instead, again, tracks the source of the argument, understands why someone would be making it at this point in a particular context. I'll give you a very current example. Mitch McConnell voted against convicting Donald J. Trump and of high crimes and misdemeanors. And then immediately after the vote was taken, stood up and delivered a denunciation of Trump that was stronger than any that those on the Democratic side had offered. It was absolutely scathing. It was scorched earth. And then I heard the next day or two people debating, talking about what McConnell had done. And most of the commentators, especially on the left or liberal side, spent all their time accusing McConnell of being on, trying to be on both sides, 
of the fence of being hypocritical, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Very few, in fact, I barely heard any person, perhaps Claire McCaskill, former senator, said, okay, let's try to figure out why McConnell said this. What was the argumentative uh, advantage that he hoped to gain? How did what he argued here relate to the entire impeachment debate and so forth? And, you know, I think myself that McConnell's strategy was uh, rather subtle and quite calculated and worthy of investigation as opposed to being just worthy of a visceral response. Tell us more. What's your interpretation? Well, it's very simple if you think about it. McConnell, if he had voted against, would have brought several people with him probably, and maybe brought the number of Republicans voting to convict up to 10 or 11, Uh, probably not 12, probably not 17. After that, what would have been his position? He would have been identified as the leader of a minority, very small group, of senators in the Republican caucus, what would have been the result of that? He would no longer have been the leader of that caucus. So one analysis of what he was doing when he condemned Trump, but only after having voted to acquit him, is that he was shoring up his own position. And also, he was doing what he could at the moment to drive a wedge between Trump and a Republican party that he saw as having suffered as the result of its association uh, uh, with Trump. So you can go on with that analysis and also even refine it to the point where you could think of particular members of the Republican caucus to whom he, McConnell was speaking, both when he voted not to convict and when he gave his scathing speech. And it could be a very nice analysis over a number of pages. And as a result, you would have an insight into the dynamics of the political process and a political argument. So you teach in law, and I think a standard practice in law school is to have people make arguments independent of their own perspective on an issue, right? So it's just a standard practice. You say, hey, I want you to argue this position or that position. I found it increasingly difficult to get students to make arguments that they don't fundamentally believe. And, and, and even when they do so, they'll do so in a manner that is transparently insincere. They'll disavow the argument, right? And so, you know, here in Silicon Valley, where we preach failure is a good thing and 90% of ideas are bad ones. And the only way to find out what's a good idea is to, is to pursue it and try it out and see if it goes. And yet when it comes to arguments that have the touch on areas other than say blandly technological people are are unwilling to try out and they'll just prejudge an idea before they even explore it and i think that's probably true in literature too where people will decide what a novel is about before they open the first page do you see that do you see that as a as something which can be untaught or is is that a trend that perhaps we can make some interventions around I don't know about interventions, but as you were speaking, I was thinking of John Stuart Mill, not my favorite philosopher. In fact, in many respects, I am a critic of Mill's. But in one thing that he said, he says, if you want to know your own position and know it well, expose it to as many objections as possible and respond to those objections. And in the course of that exercise, you will come to be in firm position of your own. And he went even further. He says, if no one is offering a position opposite to yours, invent one so that you can have the benefit of the exercise that results from attempting to defend your thesis. And I think that can be done. Uh, When I was writing columns for the New York Times for a number of years, one of the things that I did, although I don't think anyone else did regularly, that is for every third or fourth column, perhaps even more frequently than that, I would devote a column after I'd written one to all of the objections that had been made to the first column. And usually when I wrote a column and I received anywhere from 400 to 1200 comments on it, they would be about 80 to 90% negative. So that I had lots of material to work with. Then I would go through all the negative arguments, line them up and attempt to respond to them in the next column. And in the course of doing so, I would refine my position or find that a formulation of it that I had offered. But I can't think of any way that perhaps you can to make this, in a sense, mandatory or culturally widely practiced. Can you? Well, it reminds me of the objections and replies section that you'd see in a uh, standard philosophical text 
back in the day. I think Descartes had one and a number of other philosophers would have that. And it reminds me also of Alfred Sloan, who remember famously at a meeting where everyone agreed with him. He said, I'm, I'm going to leave and I'll come back when you guys figure out how to disagree with me. And I think in business- I hadn't, that's good. Yes, that's good. He was the CEO of General Motors back in the yes, you know, right. 20s and 30s. And so I, I want to wrap up with the, with the idea of professional response. Oh, good. Let me say one more thing about why are students, so your students, as you report, either unwilling or unhappy when they are asked to present the case for views that they don't believe in. I think the general reason is that students have now substituted the value uh, of inquiry and investigation, have substituted for those two values, the value of what we might call virtue. Students want to be on the right side and think that if they are on the right side and have arrived at the truth, that there's nothing to be said for the opposite position, absolutely nothing to be said for the opposition. This has become ingrained in their culture. Well, I think also even when you're discussing things that have nothing to do with politics, if in, in say a business class, if you're just trying to figure out, should you expand into this product or that product? Disagreeing with someone is often perceived as a um, doubting of that person's integrity or that person's fundamental worth. So people are, are feel threatened by disagreement and confrontation. If I give a group assignment and people will want to do individual assignments because to do a group assignment requires that they sit down and, and hammer out the disagreements and they'd much rather agree to disagree, which is, I think, troubling for collective endeavor. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so let's want to wrap up with a discussion of professional responsibility. Journalism, I think at one point had this idea of professional responsibility, which on the one hand can be seen as kind of a, a form of censorship and, and another can be seen as a form of bounding the argument space, so to speak. Has professional responsibility been completely dissolved in the world of, of journalism? We seem to see virtually no constraint on what constitutes journalism, even within mainstream media. Yeah, I think you're probably correct. And I may return to my experience writing columns for the New York Times. I periodically had to explain to my readers what I was doing because they wanted me to be giving my opinions on the subjects or topics that I raised. Whereas I was trying to do is explain the, what we might call the intellectual and sometimes political situatedness of those topics. And they were just not, my, many of my readers just couldn't go along with that exercise. But that of course is what journalism at its best, at least in the ethic that was established during the 20th century does. It lays out and analyzes phenomena in which the public is interested. And it doesn't cross that line into advocacy or attack. And I think that line is increasingly being crossed in print journalism, in cable networks, which have an obvious political slant, and you don't expect anything from them but a continuation or reinforcement of that slant. And then, of course, the newspapers are continue. the rival newspapers are continually accusing each other of crossing the line that they themselves are busily crossing at every moment of the day. It goes to a question of trust. I say in uh, the book, the first, especially in the last two chapters, that what is necessary to heal or at least to ameliorate uh, the violent partisan tensions of the day is to find a repository of trust in some of our institutions. So you could have faith, not faith in that everyone who writing for these newspapers was getting it right, but faith that everyone writing for these newspapers was trying to get it right. That's a large distinction. But one of the results of the kind of populism and the result of the internet proliferation of data without gatekeepers. One of the results of these phenomena is an erosion in the trust that we have in institutions like major network news departments, encyclopedias, university, boards of, ex of experts, professional associations, even the US census, the congressional library, etc. Whole 
and I've not by any means exhausted the members of this category. If you have a bunch of if you have repositories of trust to which the general population turns, then you in a position to resist uh, the violent polarization of both political and everyday life that we see today. Then the question is, how do we get back that trust when so many political efforts are being made to break it down and to break it down successfully? Again, if I had the answer to that quest, questions like that, I'd probably have a larger platform <laughs> than I have at the moment. Well, perhaps your next book can be on the rhetoric of the pandemic. It's been fascinating to observe the complete politicization of the discussions around what should be seen as either epidemiological questions or cost-benefit questions or uh, questions about the efficacy of different policy interventions. I, I think it's hard to find people who don't have some kind of s suspicion around <laughs> proclamations that maybe 30 years ago people would have viewed as being objective and uh, both sides are trying to claim that science is on their side and, and that follow the science is something that everyone can agree on but no one can agree on what the science is yes arguments about the pandemic or political divisions around the pandemic are a reflection of a uh, more general shape of our society's conflicts today and i'm certainly not the first to say this but there are a group of people who resist the emergence of modern and even postmodern life and see in some sense correctly that their own influence, power, and hegemony are going to be the casualties of the political and demographic constituencies that are now emerging. So when they find a pandemic being embraced as a problem by a certain elite group they distrust, they not only dis continue to distrust that elite group, but they begin to believe that its object of concern, in this case, the pandemic, is a hoax, is not real, etc. And of course, the same analysis applies to climate change arguments and other arguments, where one group just sees that fairly soon, in fact, perhaps tomorrow or even yesterday, the world is not going to be arranged as it was when I was a child or when my parents were first making a living and a family. And the response to that is extremely strong and tends to sweep up everything in its ambit. Stanley, it's been great chatting with you today. I highly recommend this book. It dips into a lot of the themes that you've been discussing throughout your entire life. I think now is the time for Stanley Fish and of course, Winning Arguments, which I dare say it is a self-help book as well as a, as a fine uh, work of criticism. Great speaking with you, Stanley. Hope to see you again sometime in the flesh. Thank you very much. And thank you for your excellent questions. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm -hmm.